The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Hey, good morning, church. So good to see all of you. My name is Cade. For those of you that don't know me, I think a lot of you in this room do know me, but for those of you that don't, my name is Cade, and it is, uh, it's my honor uh, to get to stand before you today and preach. So Pastor Blair is going to be out for a couple of weeks, but do y'all remember, were you here last week? Did you see that slide of the tomato-faced preacher that he put up? So I have a tendency to be a little tomato-faced sometimes. Uh, the Lord has seen fit to bless me with a, a pretty red complexion and a mighty round face. And so uh, if I start turning into a tomato up here when we get going, don't, uh, don't panic, don't call an ambulance. That's just the way I look, and it's normal for me. But I'm excited, about, uh, I'm excited about today's sermon. I'm excited about this week. This is a, it's a historic week in American history, is it not? It's a historic week in American history because of the election that's coming up. And they say it's the most important election that we've ever had, ever. They also said that the last 58 elections that we had, and they'll say it again about the next one. But it is definitely important. And so I want to start by asking a couple of questions. Now, this is a rhetorical question, so I don't want anyone to raise your hand. I just want to ask the question. It's rhetorical, right? How many of you are pumped and excited about going to the polls this week and casting your vote? If you didn't already, in early voting. Quite a few. But here's the reason I didn't want to see any hands, because how many in the room are not excited but go and cast their vote reluctantly, with anxiety. But the thing that we can agree on, and I do want to see your hands for this one, right? Do, do we all agree that voting is a priority in American democracy? It is. It is a priority. It's a huge priority. And we make it a priority. Not only voting, but all of its implications. But I actually don't want to talk to you about elections today. It's sort of a trick. Right, what a, I don't want to talk to you about election. I want to talk to you about your priorities. That's the thing that's going to matter the most. You see, we're in the middle of a, a series here that's called Unafraid. It's a series that's designed to help us be unafraid in our witness of Jesus Christ and His gospel. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, the series began in Romans 1 with the power of the gospel. And then we saw how the gospel moves us to praise in Hebrews 13. And then last week, proclamation of the gospel was proclaimed from Ephesians 6. But this week, we're going to look at the gospel and how it affects what we make a priority. So here's how we have to look at it. Our priorities reflect our passion. It's like a mirror image. If you are passionate about something, if you desire something, if you believe in something, it will be a priority. No, I didn't say should be. I said it will be a priority if you believe. So do you believe in the gospel of Jesus and all of its implications? Does the gospel inform and regulate what you make a priority? Let's open our Bibles together this morning and see a few, uh, few ways that God teaches us how to prioritize our lives and reflect an unafraid witness and gospel to Jesus Christ. So, turn with me, if you will, Galatians 6, chapter, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. 
That's where we'll be this morning. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. If you're looking for it in your New Testament, go past the four Gospels, past Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and you'll land in Galatians. So follow along with me and I'll read. God's Word says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is God's Word for God's people. You see from this text, we can see some of the great priorities for the Christian life. Let me put it this way. Because of the gospel and for the gospel, we make these things a priority. Point number one, derived from the text, always choose love. So look again at the first part of verse 9. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good. We always choose love because love is the root of doing good and God is the root of love. God is love. Do you ever think about that? We say it all the time. I hear it all the time. God is love. Even among unbelievers, I hear God is love. But do you ever think about it? Do you think about what that actually means? Do you want to know what that looks like practically? Look no further than Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 calls Him the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God. And in John 8.58, Jesus said Himself, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. God is love and Jesus is God. When we look to Jesus and we study His life as found in the Scriptures alone, that's an important part. Now you're not learning about Jesus from the History Channel, are you? From the Scriptures alone, we study Jesus' life and we find practical example after practical example of one who would do good and always choose love. But if we are going to do good, true good, then we've got to understand the importance and the centrality of love. When it comes to doing good, we typically think of the rules or the law to tell us how to do good. Right, let's take I-35 out there for an example. Um, the rule uh, is that you go 75, for those of you who don't know. 75. So if you're doing that or slower, you're doing good. If you're above that, no, you're, you're doing bad. So that's often how we find the difference between what is good and what's not. And laws are filled with rules of what you shall do and what you shall not do. And Israel had been given the Old Covenant law through Moses, right? Well, Jesus was asked some trick questions about the law. In Matthew 22, verse 35, a lawyer confronted Jesus, asking him which commandment is the most important. And instead of quoting any particular statute, Jesus told him this. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he told the lawyer, that all of the law depends on this. You see, Jesus is pointing out 
that love is the core of God's law. It is the foundation of every statute, every command, every principle, and every example that we are to live by. Love is why we do good. Love is the key to understand Paul when he says things like in Romans 7, 6, he says we're released from the law, but then later writes, but under the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, 21. You see, although we are free from the law of the old covenant, we are bound to the new covenant law of Christ, which in its essence is love. Look again at Galatians 6, but this time go out of verse 9, go all the way up to verse 2. And what does it say there? Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see it here again in this example that this this doing good and bearing one another's burdens is born out of love and seeking to obey the law of Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took the Old Covenant law and He doubled down on it by extending it well beyond the letter of the law and cutting straight to the heart. The law said, do not murder. But Jesus says that hate in your heart is murder. The law says, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, lust in your heart is adultery. So we do not commit murder, nor adultery, nor hate, nor lust, because they are the opposite of love. These things violate your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? It's anyone and everyone around you. Anyone you come into contact with is your neighbor. These things violate your neighbor. Let's do this. Put your finger here. A little Bible exercise. Let's go to Romans 13, verse 8. So go backwards. I'll give you a moment to get there. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. So follow along with me here. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, although we are free from the old covenant, we are called to obey the law of Christ, a better law, a law of love. And so when faced with decisions in relationships, when trying to figure out how to deal with another person, how to decide to manage or respond when somebody sins against you, we always choose love. I have a verse that you need, and you're going to need it this week, election week, you're going to need it, so write it down, and you're going to need it every week after that. And it's this, it's very short. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. That's a verse that you need to carry with you for the rest of your life. Because of the gospel, choose love. Choosing love is, is something we always do, but here's something that we never do. Never surrender. Back in Galatians 6, Second half of verse 9 here, it says, For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The gospel gives us eternal hope. 
That's what in due season means here, that we have assurance for the future. We have hope for what is to come, hope in the gospel. So then, because of the gospel and for the gospel, we make it a priority to never surrender. Now, some of you that are bent like me, you heard that and you got a little bit excited. You're like, oh yeah, never surrender. Never surrender, never back down, never give up, never give in. My way or the highway, Jack. And that is not at all what I'm talking about. You see, there are times that out of love we back off. That's pride. I'm talking about love. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, He said, If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. See, the context of the never surrender I'm talking about is found in the whole of Galatians 6.9. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In doing good, we never surrender. In the hope of the gospel, we never surrender. In loving God and loving neighbors, we never, ever surrender. Do you have anyone in your life that's hard to love? Someone who makes it virtually impossible to do any more good for them. Do you have anyone you just don't want to pray for anymore? Never surrender. Never surrender because God never surrenders His love for you. If God gave up on you the next time that you sin, how far would you make it? Would you get to the end of the week? Would you make it to the end of the day? Would we even get out of the parking lot? If we're honest, we wouldn't get very far at all, would we? But God never surrenders His love for His people. He doesn't give up. I am sure of this, because the Bible says it, that He who began a, work, a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. We know that from Philippians 1.6. It's God's Word and it gives us hope to make endurance a priority. It gives us reason to make it a priority. It gives us strength to not grow weary of loving and doing good to those around us and in our lives. So like the little engine that could, we keep chugging along. We keep doing good. And when we get slapped in the face for it, we turn and we offer the other cheek. But we never surrender. We don't surrender our gospel love or our gospel hope to anyone because it is offered to everyone. Look with me at verse 10. It says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We, good, we do good to all because nobody is uninvited. Nobody's uninvited. The gospel invitation is available to everyone. If you are a disciple of Christ today, you will make it a priority to remember that nobody is uninvited. Because you've received and now hold in your hand an invitation which is open and can be extended to all. You 
must not take the invitation, kiss it, shout, thank you, Jesus, and then stuff it in your back pocket and turn your back and walk away. Your life can change today. And here's why. Because God is holy. He is good. He is love. There is no wickedness in Him. There is no malice in Him. He's different from us. He is not now, nor will He ever be found in the presence of sin. He is perfect and therefore deserves and demands perfection because He is also just. But our sin separates us. We have all willingly participated in evil. And if you don't think this is true about yourself, I could spend some time and we could go through this book and I could show you sins that are pointed out, but I don't need to do that. I don't need to do it because your sin is self-evident. It presents itself in the fear and the anger and the guilt and the shame that we all know too well. Sin isn't as simple as a list of do's and don'ts. It's a heart problem. It's a problem that separates us from God. But Jesus is God in the flesh. And He stood in our place. The Bible says that God's Son, that He's God's Son and He lived a life that I could not live. Holy, blameless, sinless, perfect. And although... He he did nothing to be punished for. He willingly went to the cross in my place where God the Father satisfied His justice by punishing Christ instead of me. Because Christ stood in my place, God is satisfied and has forgiven me. And you can be forgiven too. Repent and believe. That's what you need to do. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn from your sin, to literally change your mind about it. Repentance will cause you to hate the wicked things that you once loved and to love godly things that you once hated. It'll change your attitude. It'll change your worldview. It'll change your destiny. Repentance is also sorrow over the sin that you've committed and the sin in your heart. Repent of your sin and pray for forgiveness. Believe that this message is true. Believe in the witness of the Bible. Believe in the witness of the church. Believe that Christ Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Believe the gospel and you can be changed forever. You'll have newness of life. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't stay dead. He was placed in a tomb and on the third day he rose to life proving to the world that He is who He says He is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's the King of the universe. He conquers sin and death. He is the door to eternal life, and He can heal your heart and give you a new life today. In John 3, Jesus called it being born again or born of the Spirit. Because we've all been born of the flesh, Everyone in here, that's, that's how you got here. You're born of the flesh. But if you've been born of the Spirit, believe the gospel and be born again into new life. This is your invitation. And it is open 
to all. It's there for whoever. Does that word sound familiar? Whoever? What if I say it this way? Whosoever. Right? Also from John 3, perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, everyone is invited to believe. Nobody is uninvited. The invitation is open. But the window is closing, and it's closing faster than you know. I'd be unfair if if I gave you John 3.16 and didn't give you John 3.18, just two short verses later. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The gospel is an urgent message. It's urgent because time on earth does not last forever. None of us know how long we have. So like we glean from Galatians 6.10, it says, while we have opportunity, share the gospel with everyone. Do good to everyone because nobody is uninvited. Final gospel priority I want to talk to you about today is found in the last part of verse 10. So after exhorting us to do good for everyone, it reads, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. That's your brothers and sisters. That's the church. That's these people. Look around. Because of the gospel and for the gospel, make it a priority to arrange for the church. I think arrange is a good way to think about it. Arrange necessitates prioritization. You have to arrange your life in such a way that the church is a priority. The Sunday gathering is a gospel priority. Hebrews 10.25 warns us not to neglect meeting together. Romans 12.5 says we are one body of Christ. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us to use our gifts to serve one another. 1 Thessalonians encourage one another. James 5.16 confess to one another. Hebrews 13.17 submit to pastoral authority. John 15.12 love one another. The list can go on and on. The point here is that gathering is a gospel priority. Arrange for the church. Arrange for the church by attending small group consistently. It's a supplement to the Sunday gathering. You see, back in the old days, the early church, people lived in small communities. They didn't cross miles and miles on a daily basis like most of us. Their cultural context lent itself toward community as the church saw one another on nearly a daily basis. Our culture does not lean itself toward community. We have gates and walls and fences and miles that separate us. We have fake online communities that make us think we're in community. We have brothers and sisters that drive from Wimberley and Kyle and Seguin and Converse. Our cultural context demands a greater dose of intention to gather, a greater effort to make each other, the church, a priority. Arrange for the church 
by meeting one another's needs. Arrange for the church by believing the best about each other and leaving gossip in the trash where it belongs. Arrange for the church by studying scripture together, praying together, crying together, laughing together, by being more than Sunday acquaintances, by being more than friends, by being sisters and brothers adopted into the same family of God. Arrange for the church because it's how we display for one another, we display love for one another to a watching world. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you have believed the gospel, then don't undermine it by placing the body of Christ so low on your priority list. Don't sacrifice our witness on the altar of sports or kids' events or recreation or business. We are one body in Christ's bride. Jesus wants you to have the same love for His bride that He does. He said this in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's this love for one another that becomes a great witness to unbelievers. As we love one another, we stand out in a hate-filled world. When division surrounds us, we stand firm, unified by the good news of the Prince of Peace. Our uncommon community, selfless love and gospel hope reflect joy in the Savior and joy in one another. Our lives live together. They become an unafraid witness to King Jesus. Because of His gospel and for His gospel, make it a priority to arrange for His church. You know, when I opened the sermon, I said that that priority reflects passion like a mirror. But this mirror, it's not like the little bathroom mirror tucked away in the most private room of a house. This mirror is huge, and it's clear, and it's bright. Our priorities, whatever they may be, shine out, and they give witness to the things that we hold most dear. And I pray that as we leave here today, and the world sees our reflection, that they can't help but take notice of a church so affected by the gospel that we always choose love, never surrender, where nobody's uninvited, and we arrange our busy lives for each other, the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I pray just that, Lord, that we would be a people that have been so affected by the gospel, that have been so changed by the gospel, that we can't help but go out from this place and reflect that to a watching world. Lord, I pray that we would do that in unity. I pray that if there are any among us today who have heard the gospel for the first time or maybe have heard the gospel a million times and never understood it, but today it connects, today it makes sense, God, may that be you working in their heart. Lord, if there is any of that among us, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you save them, change, change that person.
Lord, we just thank you. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.